Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb. And on today's episode, we are speaking to a musical genius. Um, this is a person who has mastered the art of jazz and pop music and has had a stellar career in the music business and someone who I've always wanted to talk to. In my bucket list of interviews, Patrice Russian is on that wall. So I, I, I finally was able to get you and welcome to the Backstory Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Kobe. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, looking forward to uh, our chat today. I'll tell you a little, um, and I kind of told you a little bit of, of my behind the scenes. I know a lot about you and I'm gonna tell you why. So when I was a kid, my uncle is McCoy Tyner, whom you've worked with, the jazz pianist. And I happened to have the luck of being born on the same day as his birthday. Wow. So what did everybody in the family think? Oh, this guy, he is the, the child prodigy, the next one in the family. So I was a classically trained pianist at a very young age until I broke my hand uh, in middle school and, and, I, and I stopped. However... I did a lot of research at the time because I was more into, I wasn't really into jazz. I didn't know. I knew about my uncle and I would go to concerts and I would experience all of that. But I was more into just music in general, just R&B music and pop music. And I found you when I was young and learned so much about you because you were a child prodigy and started playing when you were like three years old and doing recitals when you were six years old. And it was like I had a connection to you. And then, you know, a few years later, you were making these big R&B songs and then pop songs. And so like that was something that triggered me and my ideas. So um, that's a little bit of my connection to you uh, as a child. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about Baby Fingers and that and and just the piano part of your career. Well, you're right. I started really young. And, and, and like a lot of kids, you start with classical repertoire. I mean, but at home, uh, of course, my parents were big, big, big time music lovers, listened to, uh, you know, the music of their day and their generation, which included a lot of jazz. So that was music that I heard all the time around the house. I, the radio was always on. So there was, you know, and the television always on. So music was sort of in the atmosphere of all types. So in playing the piano and learning how to play the piano, you know, kids, you're going to experiment with a lot of other kinds of music that you hear on the radio and stuff. So it wasn't just about what I was learning for my piano lesson or supposed to be learning for my piano lesson. Correct. It was also about picking out things by ear that I was also hearing on the radio or that I was hearing on television. And these things became interesting and intriguing for me. And then my lessons, you know, with my piano teacher became more of, I guess, applied knowledge. I mean, you know, now, remember, I'm five years old. I, I, the, right. all the subject, all of the categories and the names that we can call it now were not a part of my thing. It's just that I had a lesson I was supposed to do. And then I had the things I wanted to play. Right. And my teacher was very good at being able to link the commonality of the music that I may be picking off the radio the Marvin Gaye, the, 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 the Herbie Hancock, the, the, the simple things that I could kind of pick up by ear and be able to weave that into a, an awareness that music is music. And if you, whatever kind of music you want to play, you want to be 
communicative in it, meaning that, you know, you don't want to be sloppy. You want it to be neat. So let's go back, back to these scales so you can get that lick out. Or let's talk about this motif that keeps recurring in this song, just like this motif that keeps recurring in this piece by Mozart. In other words, linking together musical concepts and ideas that weren't locked to category. And I think that that really had a lot to do with why, uh, you know, coming up, uh, I liked so many different kinds of music. So my goal was to be able to always participate in these different musical settings. And it really forced me to, you know, think in terms of that participation would mean that I would have to be good in any of those settings. The older I get, the, find, the more I found out, find out that those settings did overlap. And in the music that I did myself and in the music that I continue to do, it's always interesting to see what aspects of the vocabulary, you know, come through in order to best convey the, the message of the, of the particular song or particular piece. So it became all one thing. And while I had people in each area who excelled, for example, your uncle, that tradition of what that music represented, that type of playing came from something. And learning about him sent me back to find out, well, where did that information come from? And then by the time I got to McCoy and saw how that reached further and that even some of my peers, Azar Lawrence, for example, was starting to play with him and all of these types of things, it really started breaking down the categories in the wall in the walls for me. And then it just became about whatever you do, do it with a degree of passion, a degree of dignity and excellence, knowing that it's come from somewhere else. Wow. Talk a little bit about high school because you grew up in L.A. So this you're in the entertainment mecca of Los Angeles and you're in a special program in high school and you were actually exposed to a lot of different musicians. And actually you were exposed to music and films as well. Right. Right. Well, you know, L.A. had always because of the film in television industry, there was always this level of musician that was not famous, that was just could walk the streets every day, but, you know, read the stock market and had had money and read, you know, all of these different kinds of uh, ways in which to invest their money. And it's like, well, who are these people? Well, these were a lot of times the, some of the most elite in terms of their ability to be versatile who played for films and television. So there was that side. The other side of that, another side, I shouldn't say the other side, but another side of that was those musicians who came in on a weekly basis and played a stint from usually from uh, Tuesday night to Sunday night at the various jazz clubs that there were. And you could go and hear these wonderful musicians who were, you know, on tour. L.A. was one of the stops. Mm-hmm. And you could go multiple nights and hear different groups and different people play. And so that was another indication of what a music career could look like. Then, of course, we had teachers, great teachers, who offered yet another view of what music careers could look like. I think if, if L.A., for me at that time, represented anything, it was all of these possibilities for multiple expressions doing music. It didn't have to look like one thing. So when we would buy arrangements, our my high school teacher would go and talk directly to Quincy Jones or directly to anyone that he could find that would would send us music way over our heads. But the idea was that it put it in our minds that that was the level that we were trying to, to reach. Gerald Wilson was living in Los Angeles and sent us all kinds of charts and had some of us come in and maybe play with his band, small bands, you know, Willie Bobo, you know, would have us come sit in and we would go to hear him play. In other words, our trips were not only to hear 
the music, the wonderful music of the LA Philharmonic, but they were also to be able to go field trips would go to the jazz club, Shelley's Manhole, the Lighthouse, Howard Rumsey's Concerts by the Sea. With, these were our field trips also because I went to an all black high school. I think there was a an absolute awareness on the part of the of our teachers, Reggie Andrews being one, Donald Dustin another, and Frank Harris for us to be able to understand and see ourselves in these different musical environments. And for those of us who chose to go on to understand uh, the responsibility there and the pride that the American classical music was created by people who look like us. That's powerful. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And you grew up in South Central Los Angeles. That, that's, that, that's a whole other world of things <laughs> that you were experiencing as a, as a young person. So then as a teenager, you get invited to the prestigious Monterey Festival. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about that. The jazz band component of that high school experience was called the Msinji Workshop. Msinji being a Swahili word for root or foundation. And we used to play a lot of battle of the band type jazz competition type things like that. You know, you you play your band wins a trumpet and wins a bass drum and wins this. And we needed stuff. So we played a lot. And we entered this high school contest with the Monterey Jazz Festival. Now, the festival itself, the Monterey Jazz Festival, was very, very well known. Yeah. Huge Huge jazz festival for years and their educational component involved high school kids being able to have this little competition, so to speak. And the winner or winners would appear on the big festival, the main festival. So our band didn't win, but I entered the combo division with a sextet and the combo did win. And we got to appear on that main festival on the main stage. It was thrilling. It was an exciting moment and really was the ramp up that started an awareness of what I was trying to do as a musician and uh, my career. Yeah, that I, I couldn't imagine that. That's just a, an amazing moment to like capture. Like when you were on that stage, like, were you nervous? Did you how did you like fight through that? Because that's <laughs> that, that was the t- that's where everybody wanted to ascend to be on that stage. Yeah, I believe I was pretty nervous, but, you know, a long time ago, you know, I learned that, you know, when you bring yourself to the music, that becomes the overarching focus, if you could just get to there. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of anxiety leading up to it. There's a lot of anxiety when you sit down. To, there's a lot of anxiety when you start. But after you start, then the music and, you know, that feels like home base, you know, and the music begins to happen and you do your best to just stay in the moment. Of course, that's that's kind of hard at 17 years old with a yeah. crowd crowds larger than you've ever been in front of. But at the same time, the thrill of it and the uh, mixed emotions of the positive kind of nervousness, you know, the kind that makes you rise, you know, that, that seemed to kick in. So, so we had a great time. I really enjoyed it. So from that stage, then you were able to get a recording contract. Exactly. And again, you're like a teenager and then labels are coming to you and it was prestige came to you. So then that must have been like, wait, what? You want me to make music? <laughs> You're exactly right. You know, most people thought I was a little bit nuts when I was right. turning stuff down. Right. I was about to go to college. I, You know, people who made albums, you know, they they were like here. And I'm, right. you know, like here. And I'm not feeling like I'm ready to go there. 
I just didn't feel like I was ready, you know? So I kept saying no. And people were like, are you nuts? So finally, when Prestige came to me, and that was one of the last labels, you know, they came to me, they said, listen, we're not looking to make this a huge deal. We'll, you know, the idea is to, they use the word document, to document these beginning stages of a career that we know is going to happen. Now, you may not feel that way, but we we do. And we're confident enough that we would like to just offer you a small deal. You know, you'd have complete creative control to do what you want. It was a three album uh, situation, three album deal. And we just want more of what we heard at the festival and, and, uh, and give you a place and a platform to experiment as a writer. But we know that this is what we would like to do. And, you know, it was brought to me in a way that didn't sound like I was just jumping off a cliff, you know? So I did it. And uh, it helped me pay for school. Yeah, you went to USC, which uh-huh. is one of the best schools in the country. So you're making music and you're going to college at the same time. You were yeah. a very busy teenager. I was pretty busy and I hated the idea of having to, you know, choose, you know, one minute. I'm, as a student, I know that, you know, you dedicate yourself to that. But as a student at USC at that time, they didn't have a jazz program. And they certainly didn't have a popular music program. So... I was involved in, I wanted to go to school because I still wanted to get orchestration and arranging together. By this time, I kind of felt that I wanted to lean in a little bit to composing and composing specifically for film and television. But I didn't have a path. I didn't know how you do that. So when I told my parents that that's kind of what I wanted to lean into, they were like, okay, so how do, what do you major in to do that? I didn't know. Right. So our deal for them to help me with school, music school, was, well, you know, they're from the generation where, you know, when you get out of school, you're supposed to be able to get a job. So teaching is a noble pursuit. So I was a music education major, classical piano minor, with the intention of doing neither because I really wanted to write. But I figured I would figure that part out. Right. I was in environments that supported the skill set that I would need to be what it do whatever. So I could still get out and play. I played in like, I had a little pop band that played dances and parties called Red Beans and Rice. I was doing the writing for Red Beans and Rice, you know, and arranging. I was going to school, still, you know, playing classical music, still involved in that. And then later on, it hit me that actually, despite the fact that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, the experience of learning how to teach would be transferable information for later learning how to make my my records, learning how to produce, learning how to music direct television shows and some of the other things I ended up doing. Certainly learning more about orchestration and how all of the instruments work because, you know, you might have to be learning to teach beginning wins. So that means you're going to have to learn a little bit about all of the wins, you know. So these were like practical, applicable pieces of information in bits and pieces where later the dots would get connected by virtue of the activities that I was had such good fortune to be placed in front of. So there was no wasted time. It just, it looked funny and yet it was so logical. Just so much foresight that you had. Like that's, I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing to have. I mean, it's so helpful. It's almost like what superheroes have. What do you call like a superpower? Like (laughs) just to be think, to be thinking like that at such a young age, while maybe some of your friends and your, you know, the people you hang out with may not be thinking along those lines. Well, I I won't, I won't take credit for being, for having a superpower as much (laughs) as I will that the circumstances as they seem to come up, that I was placed in situations where I was ready for the opportunity, if that makes sense. 
I wish I could have been able to be forced, you know, have the foresight to say, you know, this is all going to line up into summer. I had no idea. Yeah. I but you got you, your exposure, though. You were exposed to a lot of really cool people. Yes. Well, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's yeah. really it. Communicating, yeah. having questions and then communicating with people who who I trusted mm -hmm. had my best interests at heart and not being um, not being afraid to say, I don't know. And trying to ask people and then kind of put together on the basis of their opinions, some of which stuff I threw out, some of which stuff I kept. But the idea was to be able to communicate with others who had walked a, per a certain part of the walk and be able to then put together what I was going to do and then go. So then your prestige deal runs out. And now it's like it's a very interesting time in music because there's a lot of jazz artists that are making contemporary music. And so the labels are like, ah, we want you because you were like young. I mean, you were in your early 20s. And so you signed with Elektra, which is a, a major label. Mm -hmm. And you decided to just make the kind of music you always wanted to make. And talk a little bit about that transition because it wasn't really jazz music. It was R&B music. And boy, did you have an impact. Well, when I did my last recording for Prestige, I sang one song and I played bass on the song. It's called Let Your Heart Be Free. And, you know, even while I was on Prestige, you know, I was experiment, you know, with the roads had come out and the different synthesizers were just happening where, you know, I could experiment with some of those different sounds. And uh, in this particular song, uh, I, I just sang it. That's the direction that Electra grabbed onto and, and they mm -hmm. felt like there was a way in which to market to a wider audience with music that was accessible and yet still had a certain connection I'll say to the tradition because I I continued to play you know in the, in the keys and continue to write and, and all this other kind of thing it was just in another area that for me didn't look like another area because I was always at the same time I'm learning to play jazz I'm also dancing to Sly Stone and James Brown and Stevie and Beatles and everybody, all that at the same time. Right. I didn't draw that kind of distinction between the music in that way. So I think what started coming out was this fusion, if you will, of, you know, these different styles that were really a part of a whole thing for me, you know, in terms of just having other ways to be able to also use these different uh, aspects. And because I loved to dance and I like dance music and I always love grooves and things like that. Applying those things in areas where I could also celebrate interesting harmony and trying to put things together in a musical way. Anyway, it was an experiment that actually worked for me because it was who I was and people seemed to connect. Well, know? it was also a disco era too, right? So like the music yeah. was just, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting time and it was then coming you, off of the yeah. whole disco thing so the idea yeah. of orchestration the idea yeah. of using strings and horns and the idea of that being part of that side of the music appealed to me from that orchestration and arranging side yeah so it was like it was this environment that created the right place for me to if i was going to have a chance to experiment that was the right time yeah and also around that time, which was very interesting, I did not know this, you shared the same engineer or had a mutual engineer um, for Prince who was also beginning his journey as an artist. And you all connected like right around before he released his, 
you know, I want to be your lover, which was inspired by you, which I did not, I did not know. And that he offered you that song, but you guys were creative partners. Talk a little bit about that connection with Prince at that stage, where we didn't even know who this guy was. Right. Well, you're right. We shared an engineer, Tommy Vicari, and Tommy was working on one of my projects. And he said, you know, there's somebody I'm going to be working with soon. And I, you all have so much in common in terms of pay- playing a lot of instruments and a lot of the same influences and things like that. I really, I really want you guys to meet. So mm-hmm. he called him on the phone and, and we had a very brief conversation. But, you know, Prince told me then, he says, yeah, I, I, I listened to some of your music. I really like some of your music. I'd like to talk to you about it at length sometime. And I said, OK, cool. Great. And he followed up, you know, he would call me periodically and say, what was that effect you put on the clavinet or blah, blah, blah. And we would talk about music and different people that we liked and had in common. And it ended up that he asked me to do write the strings on his first album. There's a song called Baby. And he asked me to orchestrate the the strings. Now, he had in mind what he wanted, but he needed somebody to orchestrate it. So I did that. And we just stayed in touch, you know, from that that point forward. Now, obviously, you know, what happened with him, everybody knows, you know, took off and became, you know, I think a very important uh, benchmark for the kinds of musician and musicianship that allowed for there to be that opening for there to be that it would be okay for people to be able to have respect and enjoy jazz and it would that same individual be okay to be able to get inside of certain kinds of grooves and that same person be able to be okay with rock and all the other influences in order to just create, you know, uh, other, other stuff. And, you know, he became sort of that, that person. I didn't know for a long time. I mean, I, I probably read it on the same CD that you did that right. I, I want to be your lover was supposed to be <laughs> directed uh, towards me. I had no idea, wow. but, but we were, we were the kinds of friends who had a mutual love for res- the music, mm-hmm. a mutual respect for each other's abilities. And mm-hmm. we didn't talk all the time, but when we did, it seemed to be at pivotal moments, obviously the beginning of his career, the next big pivotal conversation that we had purple rain small things alone about purple yeah. rain yeah that conversation i remember like it was yesterday i mean because he was really concerned and really nervous about why wow. why he was making it right yeah he's yeah. i've bitten off more than i could chew you know da, da, da. this it was just about he had just about finished right and uh he wanted to talk about it and you know so we had a conversation about that and then the next big time was when i was doing a music direction for the grammys and he and Beyonce were opening the show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there were all these moments that were became highlights, you know, at the beginning, middle, and uh, I won't say end of his career because it wasn't really that, but where he had gotten to the point where his status as a bona fide icon or whatever or whatever the title is was was definitely in play. And still, our conversations revolved around mutual respect and the music. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Did you see that in him, though, when you met him and first initially talked to him? Did you see that he was going to be a special talent? Did you have an eye for that? I don't know that I was really looking at it in that way. Mm-hmm. I think that creatives who are in tune with certain kinds of attributes and vibrate on a certain level, the same, I think they attract, they attract each other. 
For sure. So you don't necessarily know if the person's going to ever get out there. You know right. they deserve to be. Right. <laughs> but, right. you know, but it but I think that the, 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 the bigger thing is that what you do recognize is a, kin, a special kindred spirit and you do recognize a certain potential for a major a major checkmark in what their artistry is going to present. I definitely recognize that. And he when at that moment in his career, the label people kind of got out the way and allowed him to be creative in a sense, early on, musically, because he was different. He was there, there was no other black artist like Prince at the time, and he delivered on a grand scale. But for you, when you were at Elektra, from my understanding that you had executives that were trying to mold you into one thing, but you had an idea, and they weren't necessarily always supportive of your ideas of your music when you put it out. And that, and that was a frustration for you at such a young age. Yeah. It really was because I didn't understand the proportions of the art and commerce. I didn't understand that they were not on equal ground where record sales were concerned. Like you could have a great, great stuff, but if the if there wasn't the the support or the marketing, you know, to, to accompany the accompany it off the box, that you know sometimes things can get lost. So while I may have had singles that did really, really well, when it was time for the real full core press to take things to the next level, it was always fall a little short. And it took a while for uh, for us to figure out. And I say us, meaning that my producers at the time, Charles Mims Jr., myself, the different writers, Freddie Washington, Sherry Brown, we were writing a lot of the material you know, together. It took us a while to realize that what we were going to have to do was do what people did that were having hits. And that meant that you had to have some independent promotion. Right. You could not rely necessarily only on what the record company mechanism inside was about because everything that you did was tied to the other thing. You had to sell a certain number of records at that time to get tour support, to be able to get out on tour, to be able to sell more records. Da, 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 da. You had right. to sell a certain, be on a certain place in the charts to get on television at all. You had to represent a certain level of such and such in order for the next thing to happen. So, you know, you were constantly trying to do this. And that plan had to be sort of something that uh, you had to have a plan so that as things would develop or take on their own thing, you could respond in time to be able to make things happen. Well, you don't have that plan. You're playing catch up all the time. And we right. lost, I think, uh, in terms of a, from a marketing perspective, we lost certain songs that could have been much bigger earlier. But the lesson there for us was to take to be proactive in those things over which we did have control. And we can't make you love it if you don't love it, but we can certainly put it in front of you so that you have the uh, opportunity to decide yes or no. Right. So that's what we did finally when we had a song called Forget Me Now. Yep. And when we turned it into the record company, you know, as part of this album, Straight From The Heart, they listened to the whole album and said, we don't hear anything here. Yeah. We, yeah. there's no hit there's nothing that we're going to be able to do with any of this and of course we're devastated we've we've done our research and taken it to clubs and all like that we know right, right. we have at least one thing that right. is connect with other people and we've already tested it but you know they were like well, no so we're not hearing it but that was back in the day when even if the record company didn't believe in the record they put it out anyway of course and, right at least you're a tax write-off or you buy the paper clips or right <laughs> right know? Something like that. So 
We were different by then, though, because we had found that with the hits that we had before that, that didn't have out-the-box support, that it's it's harder to run and catch up than it is to be proactive. So this one, we decided we would take the reins. We put our little funds together, and we could only afford three weeks of independent promotion. That looked like this, where you hired someone to take it to the radio station, get it in front of the program director, have them listen to it, and decide will you play it or will you not? Right. And rather than it be coming in with a stack of everybody else's from the record company and the record company's influence on, well, we really going after this one. We're doing a video and we're doing a da da da. So we really want right. to do this one. Rather than that, you just come in independently with one thing. And mm-hmm. forget me nots took off. Yeah. And uh, you know, f- major lesson in that one. So right, right before that, though, that single, uh, Haven't You Heard, was probably the first commercial song that I remember you on. And it, yeah. and it stood out on the radio. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself in that space as a as an artist? You're like, wait a minute, that's my song. And I hear yeah. it on the radio. What was that like? Well, you know, I never got used to it. I'm not used to it now. Right. Uh, if I hear myself on a, you know, on a radio or if I hear myself, you know, loudspeakers at a concert or something like that. Or, or somebody in a car and they happen to have the music loud. I almost have to, if I'm on the road, I almost have to pull over and go, you know, wow. You yeah. know, it's, it's an amazing thing. Just last year, after a long, 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 long time with doing concerts where I was appearing as a side person with a lot of other wonderful musical artists, but I was using the featured guest or mm-hmm. something like that. So after thinking about it, I had some opportunities to go and play those songs under my own name, which I have not done that often. I haven't done since touring in, in the eighties. And most of that was even in the United States. So I went, I was in London and um, I played these dates and we played obviously all of these hits and I'm looking out into the audience and I'm seeing people who are like 10 years old, right next to people who are 60 and 70 years old, responding to the same music. Yeah. It was like a thunderbolt to realize that over a period of time, the very thing that I think means the most to any songwriter or to composer is that their music is going to is going to last. And I'm playing these songs and everybody is sing- I can hardly sing for myself. They're singing so loud. I'm saying, wow. So, you know, it again, and when we get to Forget-Me-Nots every time, and that's not like it's my favorite song, but it is the one that has been the biggest lesson for me because every time it's played, I remember how it was almost denied. Right. And they told you that the album was, they didn't like anything on that album, including that song. Yeah, including that song. But that song was used, you know, it became a big hit for me in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And that song was in the movie Big with Tom Hanks Yep. in his trampoline scene. Same song became the basis for Men in Black. Yeah. The theme for Men in Black. Same song was recorded again by, you know, in the in the song Fast Love. You know, there was, in other words, the use of that particular song and other songs from that album. It's a reminder for me always that you know you never know always try to just put your best foot forward do what you believe in when you can do something that where you need to kind of back it up and help it get across the goal line if you believe in yourself you should try yeah that that was that that story so that was the tune nobody like that never died it's still to this day people my students now they'll 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 travel and they'll be somewhere and they'll take on their phone i'm in a club and 
Spain. They're playing your song. You know, it's happening a lot like that. So it's been interesting. I heard that um, when Men in Black, when they were making Men in Black, that they came to you and tried to offer you like two grand up front. They was like, hey, here, here's a little bit of money. We're, we're sampling a little part of your song for this movie. Oh, this little movie that's coming out. And you already had the business acumen to be like, eh, no, let me get my lawyer involved. And obviously that was a great, a great decision because that song, again, will live on for a thousand years because people will always go back to that movie, which was a major movie. Talk about your first time on Soul Train. What was that like? Because you grew up to Soul Train, I'm sure, in the L.A. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. When they moved, knew what it was. Yeah. When they moved Soul Train, uh, you know, it started in Chicago. And when, I guess, Don Cornelius decided to come out to Los Angeles, you know, he went to various parks and recreation centers, high schools, et cetera, et cetera, to just let people know what was going to be happening. They used to send buses out. You get on a bus, they take you to the TV station, they give you a chicken dinner and a Coca-Cola, and you dance all day. Well, what's better? Right. Then a, for a high school or a person, you know, or a person getting ready to go to school, college or whatever, you know, hey, this sounds like fun. And it was. And I saw amazing people. Al Green, right. Right. Bill Withers. I saw the Jacksons. I saw Barry White. I saw all the people that were on that show. And that's what I was there to do. I was just there to dance and have fun. And then seven, eight years later, I'm on the show as a guest. So it was like, wow. You know, you, you remember you remember walking in in that moment? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Because Don Cornelius met me at the door. He says, Well, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're back. And uh he was always really, really nice to me. But it was like just that I've had a lot of those, those full circle moments where, you know, you're doing something and then it's gonna come around again a little bit later. I remember being on the show and I asked Bill Withers a question. And he answered the question. Now, the reason that I mentioned that is because now as a college professor, several years ago in one of the uh, classes that I teach, several years ago, obviously before his death, he, he came as a guest. Wow. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so, you know, and by this time, I'm not just somebody answering, raising my hand and asking a question. Now he knows who I am. He's seen my career, blah, blah, right. blah. Right. So, I mean, it's it's like that. It's been the one just great moment, great blessing after the other on which to build and on which to offer, not just the music and the things that I do for my own joy that hopefully give other people joy as well, but to say that, you know, it's a journey. It takes time. And so to find your focus in what you love is is what it's really all about and chase that, not the fame, not the this, not the that. Chase the idea of what it is that you want to do with a certain excellence and and things fall into place, I think. So when you had Forget Me Nots and that Straight From The Heart album, which was massive for you, like after that, you kind of like, you you didn't really make a lot of music after that, maybe a little bit. And then you kind of I made, made, I, made se- I made seven albums for uh, Electra. That was the third. Right. Or the fourth. Then I, when, when my deal was up with Electra, I went to Arista for, I was on Arista for three years, but there's only one album. Mm-hmm. Because the habit there was for everything to have to go, obviously, through Clyde Davis. And, you know, he would make decisions on this and that. So once again, I turned in the album. This album was called Watch Out. I turned in the album and they go, you know, here it hit. Well, not the last time somebody told me that it was exactly. it turned out to, turned out okay. So did I panic? No. I said, okay. I waited for them to find the hit, which, again, I don't know that I subscribe to how you can tell that quickly 
without having also in play all the other things when there's so much other stuff out there. But so what? Three years went by and I'm like, you know, yo, I'm not just one to just sit twiddling my thumbs. And so I spent more energy during that time working, getting back to the idea of film and television. Right. And used, um, tried to leverage a certain amount of reputation that had was positive that had come from making records and come from doing things both in the jazz community as well as in on on on, on the R&B side to kind of leverage uh, the opportunities that may come up should I get some television stuff. So I did the image, uh, as I was asked to do the uh, music direct the image awards. I was asked to music direct five television specials for um, comedian Robert Townsend. I did his film, Hollywood Shuffle, which kind of opened that door for me to be able to do a few more television, uh, television movies and things like that. So I got around to being able to do and have the experience of doing all of the things that I really, really wanted to do and just sow seeds in all these different areas, you know, and it was nice. And again, another lesson in having a skill set where there was certain, there's certain information about each thing that was transferable to us to something else. So even though my, my time at a lecture, I wouldn't qualify necessarily as being successful in terms of the record. Mm-hmm. It opened the time for me to really be able to examine that I also had these other areas that I wanted to pursue and that that was I could busy myself doing that while I was waiting. Well, whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And you had so many full circle moments. And you're a professor, so I'm sure, like, there's so much joy in, like, giving that information back to young people. Probably had a, lot, a bunch of famous uh, students come through uh, your program. What is that like day-to-day for you just, you know, just teaching? Well, I um, I resisted it for a long time because, remember, I was trying to be this composer and I love to play and all of these kinds of things. But when it came up, it came up first doing just guest lectures about and being interviewed, you know, in front of students and everything. And then later I was offered a position first at Berkeley College of Music to be their ambassador for artistry in education, which meant that I would go back and forth from Los Angeles to their campus in Boston several times a year to work primarily with the students and faculty in terms of being able to uh, have that cross communication between departments, because Mm -hmm. the real world doesn't look like you know, you do this, and you do this. Mm-hmm. our worlds collide, you know, I mean, there's this interaction, you know, we have a mutual friend, that mutual friend hooked us back up, da, 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 find out that your uncle's McCoy Diner, we have that in common, find out that you used to play that, you see what I mean? It's like that, that's real life. Mm-hmm. So that was my job at Berkeley to find those places of intersection. During my first couple of years of doing that, I was offered a job at USC. I had come into USC as an independent person. They were doing a fundraiser, a musical fundraiser. They needed a music director. I was an alum. They called me and asked me if I would do it. Of course I'll do it. Had a wonderful time. And at that time, I met a man named Chris Sampson. And Chris said, listen, I want to talk to you about something. And he took me to lunch one day and he pulled out his pocket a napkin. And the napkin had like sort of like the scaffolding of how this popular music program that he thought he was going to want to get through was happening. 
I looked at this thing and he explained what was going on. This is the program I wish I'd had when I when went. You were a student. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, what do you need me to do? He says, well, I, right now I need a consultant. I need to know that, first of all, I'm not crazy, that there is a population for this. And I'm going to get professionals who have lived this experience and try to just slowly build it and get it over the goal line for accreditation, et cetera, et cetera. I said, sign me up. I'm down. This would be a, this would be amazing. He did. And I was artist in residence along with the late Lamont Dozier from Holland Dozier Holland, yeah. who wrote all of those songs. He was the other artist in residence. And then later, the whole, we were so successful and the program just took off that the structure of USC's music school, they changed the structure so that there became the classical division, the music education division, and then the contemporary division in which this program would be housed along with jazz studies music industry, the business side, music technology, screen scoring, and production. Now, that scaffolding now looks like the real world and the possibility for there to be the sort of interaction that does happen in terms of the real world network. So I became the chair of the popular music program, and I've been that chair for the last nine years, and the program is going into its 13th year. Wow. That's amazing. That is real. I mean, wow, what a what a full circle uh, career you're having. And um, I'm sure you're still making a lot of music behind the scenes and also working in some TV and films. And I'm really thankful that you took this time to speak to me today. And again, man, you are just such an inspiration. And um, I- I'm excited for you. I can't wait to see what you have next because you have so much energy <laughs> coming through the screen. Like, like, I get it. I get why Prince was like, yeah, let me talk to this person right here. Like, you, there's something special about you and um we need a documentary we need we need more about you so people can learn this stuff in your career this is a pathway and this is what you did in this pathway now it's a different time but still what you just shared was just that's an amazing story of just perseverance uh creativity life lessons mm-hmm. full circle moments yep um, it's been it's been incredible and again to look at it from the day to day, you don't see it like that. You know, right. you're just doing what you do, which is why my messaging to my students and to anybody who, you know, in having this opportunity right here to talk to you, there may be somebody who's going to hear this or see this and whatever it is that they do, it doesn't have to be music, but whatever it is that they do, that they realize, you know what, I'm okay. I'm okay. As long as I keep doing the thing that is my truth, as long as I keep doing and finding the joy in what it is that, that I'm about, then I'm okay. Stuff is going to come my way. Things are going to happen. And I don't have to look as at everything that doesn't happen the, the way I wanted it to. Right. The way I thought it would as meaning it's not going to happen. No, sometimes means not now because you need to be more ready or there needs to be something else happening or you need to see, have the opportunity to un- just understand. And, you know, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm just like everybody else. I mean, I can be impatient. I want to, well, I'll come. How come I can't get blah, blah, blah? Right, I, right. I get it. I'm just like everybody else in, in from that standpoint, except for this. Once I've learned the lesson, I don't have to keep repeating it. So when I found out that, you know, sometimes things happen f- or don't for a reason, and as long as you operate from the standpoint of doing the best that you can and you operate within your your truth, it will be revealed to you what the next step ought to be. 
Well, now that's a big one. That's a hard one. That's a, yeah. a difficult one for people to get, especially in a uh, in a world where you know we want stuff fast and quick, and we can get stuff fast and quick. You know, but right. that's a hard one to learn. But in the arts, particularly, I don't think that there's a you don't escape the work and you don't escape the wait. Powerful words, Patrice Russian. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, Moni Love. I didn't realize that Moni in the Middle was going to be a thing until I looked out my window of where I was living, which was around the corner for Baisley Projects in Queens, right? And, and some some this new housing development, these new duplexes that were built. And um, I looked out the window and saw some kids getting off the bus coming home from school and saw them singing Moni in the middle where she at in the middle Moni and at that point I was like oh my god I'm onto something the backstory podcast with Colby Kolb is an urban one incorporated reach media pod is good production hosted and executive produced by yours truly Colby Kolb edited by Donkus follow us on Twitter at backstory PCC on Instagram get the backstory Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.